Now let's turn again in our Bibles to the Gospel according to John, John's Gospel, and we're reading today in John's Gospel, chapter 9. And if you're using a church Bible, you should find the passage on page 1075, 1075. We've said uh, fairly frequently now that John's gospel has a design, it has an introduction, a prologue, and it has an epilogue. Uh, it has uh, a statement that is a summary of what we should be looking for in the gospel, and it has, at the end of chapter 20, a statement about the purpose for which the gospel was written. Uh, and what we find as we go through the gospel is that so many of the little themes that were announced in the prologue are taken up and developed all the way through the gospel. And then at the end of chapter 20, John tells us uh, that uh, the whole gospel has been written in order that we may believe in, that we may trust the Lord Jesus Christ. I've likened it to a, a symphony. I've likened it to a painting. I think it could also be likened to a mosaic. If we were able to put the whole of John's gospel on the back wall large enough for us to read and had the technology for certain things to flash out at us, we would see that there are signals given to us in the first 18 verses of the gospel about events that spell out what those signals mean. And this particular chapter, John chapter 9, is one of the most obvious of those passages where what has been said about Jesus at the beginning is illustrated by Jesus in something that He does. We're just going to read the first few verses here of what actually is one of the most gripping narratives in the whole of the Bible. Jesus has been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. He's still in Jerusalem. Uh, the previous statement was that Jesus had gone out of the temple, and as He passed by, He saw a man blind from birth. And His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, 
the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. It's too exciting not to read to the end of the chapter, so I've changed my mind. (laughs) So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, 
for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Well, that could do as the sermon, couldn't it, really? Um, There are occasions, uh, if you're a Christian believer, the, the weakest and frailest Christian believer, and you read a passage like this about our Lord Jesus, at least inwardly, you want to stand up and cheer. You want to say, good for you, Jesus. You you want to express your sense of what a great Savior He is. And what you know is, because of the promise of Jesus and the promise of the Scriptures, is that He is exactly the same today as He was then. He is no other Jesus, no different Jesus from the Jesus who, on the one hand, healed this blind man and brought him into fellowship with himself, and on the other hand, triumphed so marvelously uh, without even speaking to them until the end over these Pharisees who had all been to the schools of learning, who knew better than Jesus, and who eventually here despise him and uh, the very language that's used here in John's gospel is repeated in the other gospels in the context of Jesus being crucified. So, what are we learning from a marvelous, dramatic, perhaps the most dramatic passage short of the crucifixion in the whole story of John's gospel? Well, if we'd been reading from the beginning, if we had the mosaic before us, there are words in the prologue that would be lighting up at this stage, where John says that Jesus was the light that came into the darkness in order to bring light to those who were in darkness. And this is a very literal fulfillment of that promise about Jesus, and not only a literal fulfillment, but it's a gloriously spiritual fulfillment. Because in this man's case, what happens to him externally? He is given sight, although he was born blind, actually also happens to him internally. And so, the whole story moves on, and it demonstrably moves on to show how not only this man's external sight was given, but how an internal illumination took place until at the end of the chapter, he is trusting in Jesus and worshiping Jesus as his Lord. So, I want us to walk through a series of stages in which John unfolds uh, this narrative. And the first, obviously, is that when uh, we come to this chapter, we find a man in a tragic condition. Tragic I'm sure, to lose your sight at some point in your life. 
But if you lose your sight at some point in your life, you still have that inner visual memory of what the world is like. But this man, we are told, was born blind. And as Jesus and the disciples leave the temple, as they begin to make their way into Jerusalem, the disciples notice this man. Somehow or another, they know that he was born blind. They've, they've been in Jerusalem. Perhaps he was a particularly noted feature. People would whisper, you know, he was born blind. And so, they asked Jesus a question. Actually, it's a, it's a pretty typical question, really. From one point of view, it's a blame question, isn't it? Whose fault is this? And we live in a blame culture. Anything goes wrong in the world, somebody's got to take the blame. And so, they ask the question of Jesus in the only categories they can understand. Here's a man born blind, Jesus. Is this the result of his sin, or is this the result of his parents' sin? Because somebody needs to take the blame for this thing that is happening in the world where things have gone disastrously wrong. And it's very interesting to notice what Jesus does. In a way, for all practical purposes, he ignores the terms of their question, doesn't he? He ignores the terms of their question. And by doing so, by implication, he says, you're not asking the right question. People do assume they're asking the right question, don't they? And this is, in a way, this is a kind of unbelieving question, isn't it? Whose fault is this? Where is your God in this? And sometimes, like Jesus, we have to say, you're asking the wrong question. Who do you think you are asking that question? Notice what Jesus' answer is. Actually, in a sense, Jesus' answer is this. Since you're, since you're asking the wrong question, let me ask the right question. And here, in a sense, we're, we're learning the difference between a non-Christian perspective on tragic situations and a Christian and biblical perspective on tragic situations. Jesus does not say, if I explain it to you, you will be able to understand what is happening here. What Jesus says is this, my question here is, how can God be glorified in this situation? How can God be glorified in this situation? And it's fascinating that as God is glorified in this situation, the, the questions are all silenced. It's as though the disciples can be brought over onto Jesus' side to understand that even if there are conundra in life, tragedies in life that we may not be able to resolve intellectually in a fallen world. We can still ask the question and process the question towards an answer as disciples of Jesus Christ. So, my responsibility here is not first and foremost to explain to people the mysteries of the world, but to ask the question, what needs to be done here to display the glory of God in the midst of this tragedy? Actually, what Jesus, you know what a theodicy is? A theodicy 
is an attempt to justify the ways of God to men. And Jesus, in this case, gives a very practical theodicy. He teaches us to to look at difficult situations from an entirely different perspective. Difficult situations overwhelm me. They paralyze me. But Jesus is teaching us as, as the model of faith Himself that in these situations, the first question to ask is, how do I act faith as the old Christians used to say? How do I act faith in this situation in such a way that despite its darkness, the light of God's glory will shine? And so, right at the very beginning, in the midst of this man's tragic condition, and, and you notice that the disciples aren't really very interested in the man. They're, 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 interested, in, they're interested in intellectual questions. What Jesus is interested in is, how is my Father going to be glorified? So, it begins with a tragic condition, and it speedily moves to a miraculous transformation, this very unusual action of Jesus. You see, he, 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 John is giving us a hint from Jesus' words that that this is the Jesus who in chapter 8, verse 12, had said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And what He's going to do now is is like an acted parable. In, In a dramatic form, He is going to demonstrate that He is the light of the world, and as John had described Him in chapter 1, the light that gives life. And so, he does this very unusual thing. Um, I'm sure Mary told him never to do this. He spat in the dust. <sighs> he spat in the dust. And he, he made a, a paste out of the dust. And then he, he, he put that paste onto the man's eyes. Why did Jesus do that? Well, nobody knows. I don't know how many books I've read in John's Gospel. Nobody really knows. The early Christians, early fathers of the church, saw in this, and maybe there's something in this, they saw in this a kind of echo of what had happened at the very beginning in the history of the world. When there had been darkness, and then God had shone light into the darkness. That was the big picture of Genesis 1. But then in the small picture of Genesis 2, when the the camera angle focuses down on the creation of man, Genesis 2 7 says a very interesting and important thing that God made man out of the dust of the earth. You know how important that is? You know, if some secular evolutionist says to you, you know, we're just made of dust, that's all we are. Do you know Moses knew that? It's fascinating to me how people who will say that they're made of dust don't behave as though they're just dust. It's this amazing picture. I mean, it's a picture that tells us something, but, but, 
how this happened, it doesn't tell us that God made us out of the dust of the earth. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that there are things in our biology that are similar to other creatures God made out of the dust of the earth. It's all there in Genesis. And perhaps to those who had eyes to see, and John loved to to throw out these little hints to those who had eyes to see that what what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's making a big statement here. He's saying, just as my heavenly Father made man out of the dust of the earth, as it were, spitting into it and, and fashioning a man. Remember Tony Hart and Morph in children's television, fashioning a man and breathing into him and, and giving life. He's saying, here, here is a man, and he is going to experience my power to recreate and to shine light into this man's darkness. And he's showing himself for any who had the eyes to see his his greatness and majesty. And then having done that, he says, and this is odd as well, he says, go down now to the pool of Siloam and wash. And John says, do you notice John says, this is another of his like little little arrows to the side saying, by the way, uh, for those of you who uh, don't belong to our crowd, Siloam means sent. And of course, sent is one of the big words in John's gospel to describe Jesus. So he sends him to the pool that means sent, the sent one, the one who has been sent by the Father to shine as light in the world, sends this blind man to the pool called sent. And that pool, of course, if you remember from previous Sundays, was the pool from which they had gone on the great days of the tabernacle feast to draw water that was symbolic of their longing for the day when the Messiah would come. And when the Messiah would come, what would happen? The blind would see. And to to people standing around who had any sense of Bible, and many of these people probably would have put us to great shame in their knowledge of Bible. It was the one book they knew, and some of them probably knew their Hebrew Bible off by heart, or at least vast chunks of it. It's as though Jesus is saying, don't you see who I am? Remember how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5? He says, if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. I know in the older translations that's if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. But what Paul actually says, if, if, if anyone belongs to Christ, it's like being part of a new creation. So, first of all, we've got the man's tragic condition. Then we've got the miraculous transformation. And then thirdly, right in the big central part of the passage, there is a prolonged series of interrogation. And these are, these are just so interesting because they, they unveil the spiritual condition of various people. So, first of all, his neighbors interview him. His neighbors interview him. Are you the blind man or are you not the blind man? You look like the blind man. Are you the blind man? You know, perhaps that's not so stupid. Uh, who's, who's the most famous blind person in the world? My guess is it's Andrea Bocelli. 
You watch him sing as a blind man, the, the stoop of his head, the eyes. Imagine he was given sight that he would, he, just everything would change. And perhaps, perhaps there was something about this. And there, there's this debate set up. They don't know. And uh, he gives this. And, and here is something to watch as you read, read this chapter. How beautifully simple this man's answers to every question he's asked are. What does he say here? So, what do you say about this? Hey, once I, one thing I know, once I was blind, now I see. There's no argument with that. Of course, there are all kinds of arguments for the Christian faith. But this is one of them, isn't it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And so, since they can't work it out, they, they, they drag the poor fellow off to the Pharisees in verses 13 to 17. Now, we've met these fellows before. These are the men who carry somewhere in their robes the little manual of 39 ways in which you can break the Sabbath. One of them is by if you're paralyzed and Jesus heals you on the Sabbath day and you pick up your mat, they're on to you, Sabbath breaker. Jesus is a Sabbath breaker, and He's encouraging you to be a Sabbath breaker. What are they fussing about here? This is a tremendous illustration of men who believe they can see who are utterly blind. What do they see? I mean, here is a man who has been blind from birth, and now he's walking around. He's obviously seeing. What do they see? They see that in their view, Jesus broke the law by working on the Sabbath. Well, what did He do? He made paste out of His spittle. That's how He broke the law. Making paste out of spittle, they said, I think that fits into the category that is exactly the same as Law 26, subsection 2, sub-subsection C, sub-sub-subsection D, that is in the same category as kneading dough on the Sabbath day. And they're on to this man's case. In all their blind prejudice, they're on to this man's case. Notice again the simplicity of his testimony. He says, now listen, here is the truth of the matter. He put mud in my eyes, I washed, I see. And you see what he's saying. You do see what he's saying, don't you? He's saying, don't you think that trumps your needing argument, your KN needing argument? And so then they do something that is, I think, devilish. Jesus actually, in the previous chapter, spoke about these people who said, you know, Abraham's our father. He said, no, the truth of the matter is the devil is your father because you're behaving like his children. And they behave like those children in a very devilish way. They draw in the poor man's parents. Think of the situation clearly that the parents are not well off because the, the, the young man, which he probably was, 
has to beg. So, they're not well off. They've already heard that these Pharisees are going to, are going to put out of fellowship Anyone who trusts in Jesus and being put out of fellowship doesn't mean that you you end up in St. Peter's. (laughs) Being put out of fellowship means you're not going to have a job. Nobody's going to deal with you. It's mega serious. And so, they come down on these these parents who for, for perhaps two decades have worried about their son who was born blind, and now he can see, and they're terrified as to what's going to happen. And you see what happens. They, 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 you, can, you can have sympathy with them. Some readers of this don't have much sympathy with them. I have every sympathy with them. They say, we don't know what's going on here. We're just ordinary people here. And our sons of age, you go and ask him. They're trying to defend themselves. But what is so awful is the attitude of the Pharisees, isn't it? How despicable this is marauding on the weak and frail. Actually, just to make a little application of that, have you ever noticed in the, so frequently in the, in the four horsemen of modern secular atheism, especially one of them, how in almost every single instance when he describes Christianity, it's Christianity on the lunatic fringe. You never noticed that? And anybody who has a position of intellectual distinction is rubbished as being a little odd. And it's a, it's a consistent pattern, very consistent pattern. And it's the same pattern as here, isn't it? It's the, it's the attempt to destroy Jesus by destroying the weakest people who are in any sense within the circumference of Jesus' presence. And the amazing thing is, as these interrogations go on, they haul the blind man now seeing back. And uh, I mean, it's just amazing this. uh, And you see this sometimes, somebody who's just like, you know, fresh, fresh in the Christian faith, speaking so devastatingly to its enemies and opponents. And they they begin theological arguments with him. and, And you see, you know, I don't know about this, but maybe if you're born blind, you develop a certain toughness, a certain sense of composure. But God has given this man composure in spades because he's almost teasing them. Just like Elijah teased the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Maybe sometimes we need to do this to try and show people the stupidity of their anger against the Lord Jesus and the way in which they express that by seeking to destroy the weakest of those who are within the circumference of Jesus. And this, uh, this blind man now seeing, he, 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 he stands up to them and says, you know, you ask all these questions, are you interested in Jesus too? You see, he's, 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 pulling the, he's pulling the carpet from underneath them. He's saying, I can see right through you. I may be a baby spiritually, but I can see right through you. Why are you so… This man, 
Don't ask me theological questions about him. This man has transformed my life. So, why are you so angry with him? Is that interesting? You know, there are all kinds of questions here. You wonder, why did, why did Jesus let this happen? In fact, in a sense, you could say even more, Jesus, Jesus is responsible for all this. You know, if you're, if you're a young Christian, maybe the, maybe the thought has crossed your mind. I don't know many, how many new Christians have said this to me, slightly puzzled. They said, you know, now that I'm a Christian, life seems to be much more difficult than it used to be. Well, of course it is because you've been delivered from the powers of darkness into the world of light, because you're now a, you're an object of the, of the world's hatred. Says Jesus, if they hated me, then they'll hate you. And so, you see what they do. This is, this is it. This is so interesting, because they can't conquer this man's reasoning. I was blind. He put mud in my eyes, told me to go to the pool of Siloam, wash off the mud, and I came back seeing. And he just disappeared. I don't know where he is. And they throw him out of the synagogue. And that leads to the final scene in the chapter, the, in many ways the most beautiful scene in the chapter. begins with the man's tragic condition, moves on to his miraculous transformation. Then in the main section, a prolonged series of interrogation. And then finally, his wonderful confession. And you notice how John introduces it. Jesus heard they had cast him out. Jesus heard they had cast him out. And having found him. Now, those words, having found him, suggest, don't they, what? That Jesus went to look for him. He heard they had cast him out. What a Savior. He went to look for him, and he found him. I mean, it's, such, it's such a beautiful picture. This is the Jesus who has already said, if anyone comes to me, I will never cast him out. And so, he's coming for this, this man who has been cast out of the synagogue, and uh, he's going to bring him finally to the point where he understands fully what it is that, that Jesus has done for him. And you can trace this through the passage. The man's answers uh, about Jesus are progressive. First of all, he says, well, it was the man who healed me. And then they ask him, well, what do you think about this man? He says, well, he's a prophet. And then he's asked again, he says, well, it was the, it was the one who was sent. It was the one God has sent. And now Jesus says to him, well, you understand what I've done. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, there's only one other person in the whole of the New Testament ever calls Jesus the Son of Man, apart from Jesus Himself, and that was uh, the martyr Stephen as he was dying. See the Son of Man. The Son of Man is an Old Testament prophecy about the coming of the Lord in human form. And in the Gospels, it's used in three different contexts. One, the Son of Man will suffer. Two, the Son of Man will rise. And three, the Son of Man will return in majesty and glory. It's a, it's a way of describing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And, 
and it's a, it's a picture that would have been familiar to these people. They didn't know who it was, but they knew it was there in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus says, do you, do you believe in the Son of Man? And you can see what's happening. Maybe some of you were like this. You, you were maybe listening to a sermon. I remember listening to a sermon the night I was converted and saying to myself, actually almost said it out loud, just get to the end. Just get to the end and tell me, now is the time to trust in Christ. And Jesus gets to the end. The man says, well, who is he? I want to believe in him. And Jesus says, you're looking at him. And immediately, we're told about his faith and his worship. And what's so interesting is the way this ties in with the end of the, the whole gospel narrative. Remember Thomas? Do you remember what Jesus says? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John says, actually, that's why I've written this gospel. So that people who have not seen will come to faith. And here's a vivid illustration of that. A man who did not see physically, who came to see a man who could not see spiritually, uh, who was given sight. And then Jesus says something to him that some of the Pharisees over here. He says, for judgment, that is to discriminate among people. For judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and seemed to have had a guilty enough conscience to say, are you, say, are you saying we are blind? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What's this all about? It's actually very simple, eh, friends. It's this. If we refuse the one cure there is to our spiritual blindness, then we'll never see we will never see. Jesus has come into the world to, so that we will reveal who we really are. Um, and it emerges in these verses, like uh, right at the very beginning. The disciples, what's their problem? Well, they're nearsighted, aren't they? They're short-sighted. All they can see here is a theological problem. And Jesus speaks about seeing the glory of God. And the neighbors, well, they've got double vision, haven't they? They see this and they see that and nothing's clear. And the Pharisees, well, they've got a squint. And the Jews, later on in the passage, well, they've got cataract, haven't they? and they refuse surgery. But the one thing that is clear is, this man was blind, and now he sees. And he was spiritually blind and didn't know, and now he sees and knows. My guess is those categories pretty much fit us all, don't they? Not really seeing the point wanting to debate about Jesus, having a squint, 
so that, as it were, we, we see past what we should be looking at, or cataract. And we say, you know, I, there, there's something wrong with it because I can't see. And the problem is in the eyes, not in the reality. And this man who was born blind, just as spiritually we are born blind, comes to see and to worship. You're in one of these categories, for sure. And this passage is here to teach you, if you're in any of the first four categories, that there is a way into the fifth by trusting in Jesus. Heavenly Father, We thank you for giving us such a great Savior, indeed sending Him to us. And we pray that as you have sent Him to us, your Spirit will work in our hearts today, every day, now, every moment, to send us back to Jesus, to trust Him, And in difficult situations to say to him, teach me, Lord, how to glorify your Father. Thank you for his all-sufficiency and that he is just exactly the same Jesus to us as he was to this dear man born blind who was given sight. We pray this in your name. Amen.